All right. Thanks, Brother Mike. I was just thinking as I was preparing to come up here, how many of you, how many of you have an Uncle David like Brother John had that he told us about? How many have an Uncle David like that in your life? If we see a bunch of young men walking around here with fishing poles, we'll know exactly what that's all about. Uh, I, I wouldn't advise that. I wouldn't uh, encourage you along those lines. But uh, the point is well proven as far as on that side is concerned. Uh, start inviting people early and often. And uh, a commitment card, I, I, maybe we should, maybe actually we should call it something different because basically what you're saying is that we're praying that this person would come. We don't necessarily know for sure that they're going to. And uh, I don't know that we need to necessarily strong arm people into, you know, if you don't come, you know, I, you know, this, that, and the other thing. But I do think we need to work hard at it. Wouldn't it be a marvelous day for us to have 100 visitors here at Cleveland Baptist Church, uh, potentially folks here in the gospel for the very first time. And of course, that's April the 10th, and that leads us the following week, April 17th into Easter, and uh, get folks here on a, on a Sunday, a normal Sunday, quote unquote, and uh, when folks are looking for a church to go to, which is oftentimes the habit on Easter Sunday, uh, we're praying that they'll give us uh, some consideration, get them here two weeks in a row, and you never know what the Lord's going to do. And so that's sort of the idea behind the uh, having friend day there on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. You know, hope that you'll plan on getting involved, church family. We want to let you know about that early so that you can begin to pray and you can begin to invite folks. And uh, just because you get somebody to commit to come or somebody that says, yeah, I'll, I'll be there, I'll be your friend, doesn't mean you have to quit and give up. It would be great if somebody had five, six, seven visitors uh, that came that day and again heard the gospel and we will uh, we will definitely have a gospel message that morning that uh, will be certainly, we, we hope will be a blessing and used by the Lord. I uh, wanted to just take a moment. Uh, this weekend, of course, has been a very busy weekend here in our ministry as uh, Heritage Christian Schools Drama Department put on the, uh, the drama, the Baker Street Irregulars, and what a phenomenal job they did. Uh, we don't have the setup where we could get hundreds and hundreds of people in for one night, and so they've got to do it on Thursday night and on Friday night and on Saturday night, and they even have a midday performance on Saturday, four, four different opportunities for folks to get it. And I got to be a part of two of them. One I went just to enjoy, and the other one I was, I was there serving. And uh, boy, what a treat it was. And uh, boy, we have uh, some talented, talented young people here in our church and our Christian school. And we're thankful for all the hard work and all the effort that they put into it. They did an absolutely marvelous job. And again, I want to thank those that worked with them and uh, helped coordinate all of that. It is quite a project they've been working on for several months. And so again, thank you for everyone that was involved in that, for providing that for folks uh, over this past weekend. And then I also want to take an opportunity to greet a couple of special men who are watching the service on live stream. I want to say hello to John and Eugene. I was talking to Eugene just yesterday, and he said, Pastor Pete, we watch every Sunday night. Uh, we watch online. And I said, uh, I said, well, I'm going to say hello to you on Sunday night when I get up to preach. So I'm doing that for John and Eugene. God bless you guys and appreciate your faithfulness. They come every Sunday morning. Many of you know them. It was their mother that just recently took a fall, actually, in our lobby. as She was coming in a couple of Sundays ago and uh, broke her, I believe, broke her, fractured her hip and had to have some surgery. She's still in a, she's still in a rehab facility getting, uh, getting some help there and that sort of thing. And they're staying with their sister. And so, uh, again, uh, hello, John and Jean. Appreciate you tuning in to the service tonight. I think their family's watching with them. And so uh, that certainly is a blessing. Let's take our Bibles and go to Proverbs chapter number five, please. Proverbs chapter number five. At the end of the service, we're going to hear from uh, Brother James Prang. We're going to say a word or two to our church family. And so I encourage you again to stay tuned for that. And uh, we're looking forward again to hearing from him. It's good for us to have them back for just a little bit of time. Not sure exactly how long they're going to be back, but Lord is uh, certainly going to lead them and guide them and 
We're here to help them any way that we possibly can. Proverbs chapter number five is where we'll find our text this evening. And uh, we are going to talk some about, uh, about marriage tonight. And really the title of the message is this, God's plan for moral purity. God's plan for moral purity. You may remember when we were last in Proverbs, which is a couple of weeks ago, uh, that we talked about the high cost of immorality. Now, some of you may remember that message and I can go back. And in the first 14 verses of Proverbs chapter number five, he gives a very, very vivid description of the, the danger that can happen when a, when, a man, uh, when a man is not careful around a strange woman. And we find several difficulties that come into a life that uh, the price that is paid when folks determine and decide that they're going to bypass God's law and they're going to go their own way and they're going to live a life of immorality. You know what I love about the Bible is it doesn't just give warnings and it doesn't just give you know, stop signs, but it also tells us how we can avoid those sorts of things. And what we find in verses 15 to 23, really through the end of the chapter, is a father communicating with his son, an earthly father communicating with his earthly son, because that's what Proverbs is. It's Solomon, the father, talking to his boy. But we also have, because all scripture is given by inspiration of God, we have our heavenly father communicating with us as his children. And I want you to look with me, if you would, in verse number 15 of Proverbs chapter number five, where the Bible says, drink waters out of thine own cistern and running waters out of thine own well. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad and rivers of waters in the streets. Let them be only thine own and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. For the next few minutes, I'd like to preach to you a message I've entitled, God's Plan for Moral Purity. Father, we pray that you'd help us tonight as we have read our text and as we now, uh, Lord, begin this message. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as we discuss what is in front of us here at the end of this fifth chapter. Lord, as we said a few weeks ago, the, the subject matter is, is a little bit difficult to deal with such a, with such a, a wide range of, of, of listeners and people that are here tonight. So Lord, we ask that you give us wisdom and that you give us discernment, help us to say the things that you'd have us to say and certainly be careful about, uh, Lord, a certain conversation, help us to be practical and helpful to our church family tonight. We thank you for their faithfulness to be in God's house. Uh, Lord, to be here on a Sunday night and to worship you here in this place. Now teach us these things from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, we're living in a morally bankrupt society. I think most of us would agree with that. In just a few moments, I'm going to share some statistics with you about some things. And, and, uh, and I think, again, all of us would agree that the day and age in which we're living in, uh, as it relates to morals, is, is, is not very strong, not very solid. And, you know, because we're all made of fallen flesh and blood, I, I must tell you that it is vital, it really is vital that we hear teaching and that we hear preaching on this particular topic and this particular subject. Can I say that most men and most women are created to crave uh, physical relationships? Many have been, but I want to say this also, that many have been absolutely ruined by these cravings and these desires. But I also want you to know, according to the Scripture, you do not, you do not have to be destroyed in this area. 
Now, listen, I know, I know what the world is doing in this realm. I, I, know what the, I know how the world is living. I know the way the world is carrying on. I understand all of that. You understand that as well. But the world, listen, and hear me well, the world is broken. The world is broken. And the system that they have created is not, listen, it is not fulfilling. It is not satisfying. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is a mess. People are, uh, people are being destroyed by giving themselves to this without any thought whatsoever to the law of God and to the teachings that are found very clearly in God's word. The world system of doing things only adds more heartache and more regret and more difficulty to their lives as evidenced in the first 14 verses of this particular chapter. We don't have time to rehearse the things that we talked about a few weeks ago. But I would encourage you to go back and to listen to the message when you have an opportunity and you'll discover that Solomon gives a very, very vivid picture of what happens to a man, the, the high price that he pays when he dabbles in this area with, with, and he doesn't do it God's way and he doesn't have God's blessing upon his life. But can I say this, that God in his goodness has designed a plan for us to remain pure and undefiled physically. In other words, what I'm saying is you do not have to fall in this realm. Solomon, I believe, offers two specific warnings of instruction at the end of this chapter after, after telling you, here's the price that you will pay if you go your own way in this area. And then he says this, let me give you, let me give you two thoughts, two things that you ought to focus on and that you ought to be concerned about as, a, as, a, as, a, as an individual. He's speaking, of course, to his son, and he's dealing with his son's morals, but the reality is that this is for all of us here tonight. Can I say that by heeding these warnings, we too, we too, can keep our bodies pure and undefiled physically. So here's the question. What is God's plan for moral purity in the midst of a carnal culture? What is God's plan for moral purity? Listen, you need to hear this tonight. Your, your, your children need to hear this tonight. Our single adults, our young adults, they need to hear this message tonight. Those that are tuning in by way of the live stream, and on any given Sunday, we can have hundreds of people that are watching the message. These folks, listen, they need to hear this message desperately tonight because you are not hearing this message in the world. And the church must stand up and the church must be bold and must confront a very sinful and a very carnal culture. So God tells us two things. In Proverbs chapter number five, if you and I are going to remain morally pure in a very, very immoral world that we're living in, we must, we must do these two things. Number one, number one, we must be content. We must be content. We find that very, very clearly in verses 15 through 19. I believe there's two things that we need to be content with that he's telling us be content with. And number one, I want to say this, you need to be content. Every one of us in this room needs to be content, number one, with the institution of marriage. You need to be content with the institution of marriage. In the final paragraph of Charles Blow's opinion piece on the, titled, The Married Will Soon Be the Minority, uh, dated October 20th, 2021, so this is recent, written in the New York Times, Charles Blow wrote these words. He said the following, marriage as the prevailing ideal is losing its grip. And the stigma of being unmarried is also losing its grip, comma, as it should. 
Now, you, you, don't, don't misunderstand what, what is being said here. He, he's, not, he's, not saying, he's not saying that those who are unmarried and just haven't married yet, that, that that should lose its stigma because that shouldn't have a stigma to begin with. If God hasn't given you a spouse, then God hasn't given you a spouse. There, there's, no, there's no shame in that whatsoever. Uh, we, we wait on the Lord, we trust the Lord, and, 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 to, and, and to see whether the Lord's going to fulfill that in our lives or whether he's not going to. Don't misunderstand what he's saying here. Charles Blow is not talking about the single young adults in this church who are still living at home or maybe they have an apartment somewhere and a condo somewhere and they just haven't married yet. He's, he's speaking specifically about unmarried adults who are cohabitating together. And he's saying that should lose its stigma. And I just want you to know something. Based upon the authority of the word of God, that should never lose its stigma. That should always be a, a shameful thing in our culture, in our society. Because God designed, God designed for two people, two people to commit their lives to one another and to be, and to be married. That is God's design. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, more than one half of U.S. adults of reproductive age have cohabited at some point in their lives. That means they've lived together outside the bonds of marriage. And that the percentage, that percentage has increased steadily over the last two decades. Cohabitation is currently the most common first co-residential union among young adults. And it is a partnering behavior that now precedes most marriages. It's interesting, I heard a study that was done several years ago. The, 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 the line that was being used was this line. You would, never, you would never buy a car without first test driving it, would you? That was the line that was being used. In, in other words, you're getting ready to make a pretty, pretty big decision here, pretty big commitment here, and wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to try it out before you, before you actually jump into it all together? That was the prevailing opinion, the prevailing thought. But did you know that those who have studied these things will tell you, they will tell you that couples who live together prior to getting married, prior to, 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 to standing on a platform like this one and, and committing their lives to one another, they're actually, they're actually more susceptible to, adult, to divorce than adults who do not live together prior to getting married. So that sort of blows away the whole opinion. Well, you know, you, you, before you make this decision, if you're going to make it, you, you, you know, you'd want to test drive it first. And here's the, here's the thinking behind that. With the, with the idea of we're entering into this to see how it works, listen, that translates into marriage as well. We've lived together and it's worked out okay. So as long as it, as long as it keeps going the way that it's gone, well, then I guess the, the next logical step is marriage. But, but in the, listen, in the back of their minds, don't miss this, in the back of their minds, they're already making provision for an exit plan. So this idea, this concept that, you know, well, living together is the logical thing to do because you're making such a massive decision. Why would you? You wouldn't make a commitment like this without first uh, living together and trying it out doesn't hold water because as we, as we discover, it's, it's based, the whole thing is predicated upon this idea of, well, if we don't like the way it works, well, we're, we're just, you know, we're going to walk away from it altogether anyways. The... Joseph Chammy, I should say, who writes for The Hill, which is a website, thehill.com, said this on August 10th, 2021. He says, while it may not have ended, marriage in America has unquestionably declined over the recent past and is now at historic low levels for the country. 
that marriage rate is the lowest level since the U.S. government began. Listen, the lowest level since the U.S. government began keeping marriage records for the country in 1867. Not 1967, not 1976, 1867. Marriage rates have plunged as, as, as low as they've ever been since the time that the United States of America government began tracking that. He goes on to say, 70 years ago, a large majority of U.S. households, approximately 80%, were made up of married couples. In 2020, the proportion of households consisting of married couples fell to 49% below half. Some of the major factors behind the long-term decline in the marriage rate have been female education and labor force participation, women's economic independence, and gender equality, or we might say the feminist movement. Other factors that have contributed to lower marriage rates are declining religion's adherence to marriage, public disenchantment with marriage, and more recently, unstable jobs and strained finances. America's marriage rate has unquestionably declined over the recent past and reached a historic low in 2019. Irrespective of one's view regarding the significance of this decline in marriage rates, the institution of, America in, of marriage in America appears to be, now get a hold of this, it appears to have become increasingly inconsequential for growing numbers of young men and women, including couples having children together. Now that ought, to, that ought to humiliate us and it ought to shame us that we're living in a culture that basically says what this book says is inconsequential. Boy, that's, a, that's quite a statement, isn't it? Now I, I, understand, I understand that those of you sitting in this room tonight, I understand that's not your opinion or at least the vast majority of you sitting in this room tonight, that's not your opinion. But I'm telling you, that's the world that we're living in. Can I, can I say this? That, that's the world that our children are growing up in that has become extremely, extremely normalized. Most television shows and most movies nowadays, the couples that are portrayed usually are not married. Usually. And yet, and yet they live as if they were. One has to assume that the decline of marriage in our culture, it has, it has to be tied to man's rebellious heart and his desire to remove God from his life. There's no doubt about that. We as a culture, by and large, we have been very dismissive of this book. We have been very dismissive of the teachings of this book. We have abandoned God's word. We have abandoned God's church. We've abandoned God's authority. So it really, it really shouldn't be a surprise that we have also abandoned God's law or his plan for moral purity. Now understand this, that marriage is a creation. Listen, it is a creation from the mind of God. So you can understand, you can understand why a very, very secular culture says that's inconsequential. Because many of these people have grown up in, a, in an environment where they're taught that God is a figment of man's imagination. That, that the reality is, is that God didn't create all of this and that book is not really given to us by God. That's not the word of God. That's the word of a bunch of men who, who, who came together and they wrote some crazy stories. And, and, uh, and, and the, church is, the church is full of just people who are manipulative and, and, and who will strong arm you and, and they're all about money and they're all about finances. And I'm just, I'm just simply saying, like, listen, it's, it shouldn't surprise us that a, that, a, that a culture that thinks these things and lives this way would look at something 
that God designed and that God created and say, that's not for me. That's inconsequential. Because in reality, listen, every other area of their lives that should be under God's authority, they've already dismissed him there. So, so why should it surprise us that they have dismissed God in the, in the realm of marriage? According to the Bible, marriage is the oldest institution in the history of the world. Marriage predates government and it predates the church. In fact, in Genesis chapter number two, God declared, God declared that the man alone was not good, according to verse number 18. And God purposed to fix this problem by creating the woman to be his wife, to be his help meet. So here's what God did. God created one man and he created one woman and he brought this woman to the man before unifying them together as husband and wife in the Garden of Eden. Now, now, now think about this for just a moment. If any two people could have, could have lived together and it had been okay, and I'm, I'm using the, the famous air quotes here because it would have never been okay. But if it would have ever been possible for something like that to quote unquote be okay, it would have been Adam and Eve in the garden. It still wouldn't have been okay, but you get the idea, right? I mean, they're the only two people on planet Earth. So of course we're committed to each other. I mean, we're stuck in this place together whether we like it or not. And yet what did God do? In that, in that first meeting between the two of them, the Bible says that God stated these words, therefore shall a man leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. You know, you know what God did? God was uniting those two. He was weaving and cleaving their lives together. He was uniting them together. Though there was not another woman or another man on the face of the earth. So we see here that, that God, listen, God's design was marriage from the very beginning. God intended for a married couple to leave behind all other physical or earthly relationships and to cleave together as one until death. You study that in Matthew 19 and verse number six. And Jesus said, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. That's God's plan. It's God's design. God's plan or design was never divorce. It was never divorce. But because we live in a very sinful day and age, and people that are full of sinful tendencies and sinful desires, boy, the, the divorce rates are at epidemic proportions. Genesis 2.25 also indicates, also indicates that physical intimacy would be a special and unique gift to be only enjoyed within the marriage relationship. Bible says in Genesis 2.25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. As a gift from God. God was blessing this married couple for their willingness to enter into this union and to be brought together. God says, okay, here's a gift that I'm going to give you. And it's only, listen, it's only to be opened. It's only to be enjoyed within the context, within the confines of the marriage relationship. And so according to scripture, if one is to satisfy his body's natural desires, he may only, according to scripture, he may only do so within the committed covenant relationship of marriage. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. So can I just say tonight that though the world has grown discontent with the institution of marriage, leading some to say it's inconsequential, doesn't really matter. Can I say this? Listen, it is still God's way. And it is still his path to blessing. 
The moral law of God, you, you must understand this, the moral law of God never changes. You see, when sometimes we, we as a, as, as, a, as a church or a group of Christians, we, we stand against the sin of homosexuality. We find that it's expressly condemned in the, in the Old Testament law. And uh, the truth of the matter is, listen, all sexual sin is expressly condemned in Scripture. Amen. Regardless of, of what it is, whether it's homosexuality or whether it's heterosexuality, all of it is condemned in Scripture. But what a lot of people want to say is, okay, well, you know, do you, do you have to wear your beard a certain length and do you have to wear a certain type of clothes and have fringes in your garments? And do you, are you not allowed to eat this and are you not allowed to eat that? And here's what you need to understand. Listen, the ceremonial law of God changes. The civil law for the, for the nation of Israel, it, it's changed. God did away with sacrifices a long time ago. But you must understand this. The moral law of God is always the same. That, 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 that argument, it doesn't, it doesn't hold water because the moral law of God never changes. Sexual relationships between two people who are not married, no matter, no matter what, is, is expressly condemned and forbidden in Scripture. And so if you want to stay pure, if I want to stay pure and undefiled, understand, listen, understand that any physical activity apart from marriage is cursed and judged by God. So we must be content with the institution of marriage. But number two, we must be content with the wife of thy youth. Be content with the wife of thy youth. Now Solomon refers to her here as a cistern. A cistern. Now this is a, a pit or a container for receiving water, a reservoir. He refers to her as a well in this text. He refers to her as a fountain in this text. And he even refers to her as a loving hind and a pleasant roe. That would be a gazelle and an ibex. Now, I don't recommend, men, I don't recommend that you refer to your wife as a, a deer or a, a gazelle or whatever the case might be. But you will find in, in this uh, Middle Eastern culture in which they live, you read the book of Song of Solomon, Solomon, Solomon compares his wife many times in this type of language, this type of, you know, it's, it was poetic and it was, it was culturally accepted in those days. These, these animals, these animals were some of, believed to be some of the most beautiful and some of the most graceful in this culture. And so, I know it doesn't sound like that, ladies, but he's really paying, he's paying you know, the wife of his youth a compliment by saying she's the loving hind and she's the pleasant roe. Now, to refer to her, to refer to her as the wife of thy youth doesn't mean, doesn't mean that she has to be young. Some of you might be one step ahead of me. Well... You know, the wife of thy youth. Well, that means I must have to have a, a young wife and the one sitting next to me is not so young anymore, so I gotta trade her in. I gotta, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying you have to have a young wife. He's saying you need to be satisfied with the wife you married when you were young. You need to be content with the wife that God gave you all those years ago. God intended, listen, here's what God intended. God intended that husband and wife journey through life and grow old together. That's God's plan. And it is a beautiful plan. It is a marvelous plan. It's a wonderful plan. It truly is. God's plan is, again, that you quench your physical thirst in this realm. That's what he's saying. He's calling it a well and a cistern and a, and a fountain. He is saying you quench because it's natural within all of us as, as human beings. It's natural within all of us to have desires in this area. And he says you quench that physical thirst with your own wife. The wife that God gave you when you were a, a young man, 
Solomon longs for his son to enjoy a wonderful blessing in this realm and for his son to rejoice all his life in the wife that God gave him when he was a young man. To follow God's plan for moral purity is to be content, to be content with the wife you married in your youth. Though not explicitly stated, God's design includes, listen, remaining content, ladies, with the husband of your youth as well. Because I know some of you ladies are one step ahead of me. I mean, it doesn't say anything about being content with the husband, but, but you understand what's being stated here, right? This is, this is a command that's given to the man, but it's, it's good for all of us. Be content with the person that you married all those years ago. I don't know where you got married. I don't know all the circumstances that surrounded it. But I do know this, if you said I do, then God took that seriously. And God's plan is, God's plan is that ought not to be put asunder by anyone, by anyone. It shouldn't be put asunder by someone outside the marriage and it should definitely not be put asunder by someone within the marriage as well. Let what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. I, uh, I believe married couples should should continue to do things that cause them to fall in love with one another to begin with. If you're going to stay content with the wife of your youth, continue to date her. Continue to date her. Continue to flirt with her, if I can say that without being inappropriate. But I mean, smile at her and tell her nice things. You know, I mean, it's amazing. We, we do all of these things in the courting process, in the dating process, and we get married and then we just grunt at each other the rest of our lives. We chuckle about that. It's meant to be a little bit humorous, but the truth of the matter is it's really not funny. It's no wonder. It's no wonder that we we grow apart. I understand life gets busy. I understand all of that stuff, but I'm just simply saying, listen, if you're going to marry her and and you're going to stay with her for the rest of your life and you're going to be content with the wife that God gave you in your youth, you're probably going to have to do some things that that you did to win her heart to begin with. So Maybe occasional gifts that are sort of just a surprise. An occasional date night that she didn't see coming in which you find somebody to watch the kids and take her out and do something. I'm just simply saying, you're probably gonna have to do some of these things if you're gonna remain in the, in the marriage that God gave you when you were in your youth. Maybe things like a note. Some of these young people are looking at us today like, what in the world are you talking about? But really, we did. Back in the day, we used to rip a sheet of paper out of our trapper keepers. You know what I'm talking about? And we'd take our pen out and we'd write a Dear Sally, or in my case, Dear Sandra note. And I'd walk past her at the locker and hand it to her real quick because I didn't want to see any of, my, one of my boys to see me handing a note to a girl, you know, and trying to play it cool or slip it in the locker without her being aware. We used to write notes to each other. It may, it may be good. It may be good for you to write a note to your wife every once in a while. Do something that you did when you won her heart all those years ago. Again, a gift or maybe just a, just a look, a glance from across the room, a smile, Let's her know I'm thinking about you. I still love you. I still think you're beautiful. Can I say, listen, continue to do those things, but, 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 now, but now because you're in the, in, in the institution of marriage, you, you now get the added benefit of God's blessing in the realm of physical intimacy as well. And with the wife of thy youth, listen, there, he's saying there is an outlet for this. There is a well for this. There is a cistern to drink from this safely, safely to satisfy your thirst in this realm. That's what he's saying here. That's exactly what he's saying. So number one, number one, if you're going to remain morally pure, you must first of all be content. Be content. Number two, as we conclude this chapter, we find in verses 20 to 23, we find 
Not only are you to be content, but you're going to have to be careful as well. Be careful. In verses 20 to 23, he touches on three specific things. I'm going to, I'm going to hit on them and then we'll be done. Number one, he talks about the temptation. The temptation. Why do you need to be careful? Because there is a temptation out, out there. Look in verse number 20. He says, And why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? Now, do you ever ask yourself the question, why is it, why is it that not just in this area, but in every area, we are tempted with that which is forbidden? You ever ask yourself that question? Why is that such a struggle? The, the one thing, the one thing that I can't have I've, I've, I've got this, and I should be satisfied with this, but because you've told me I can't have that, it makes it more appealing and more enticing to me than it actually should be. You ever ask yourself that question? There's something about human nature. There's something about the sin nature that is naturally allured by that which it cannot have. That, that's why in the Garden of Eden, God said, you can eat of every tree, but there was one tree that they weren't to eat of, and that was the one they were most interested in. That was the one that, 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 that was most attractive to them. And instead of being satisfied with all the other trees that God had blessed them with and that God had given them, they, they couldn't get their mind, they couldn't get their eye off of the one tree that God said is off limits. And you must understand, listen, you must understand that there is going to be a temptation. There is going to be a temptation in this realm and in this area. But you must also understand that the strange woman, according to this text, is off limits. She's off limits. The strange man, we might say, is off limits. That's anyone that's, anyone that's not your spouse. I understand contextually it's dealing with, with the harlot. I understand all of that. But I think we could just take it a step beyond and just say, listen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who it is that you satisfy this longing with. If it's not your spouse, you're going to have these things that are laid out in verses 1 to 14 happen to you. Understand that this strange woman is not the wife of your youth. Therefore, her body is to be foreign to you. Solomon admits that his own son, who would be blessed with a wife, would struggle. He would struggle with the temptation to be ravished with the love of a strange woman. Maybe it's because Solomon struggled with that. I mean, we, we find that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Many of them, the Bible actually refers to them as strange women. Even though he married them, they were strange women because they were, uh, they, they were women that did not love the Lord like he loved the Lord and did not have a relationship with God like he did. And so he admits that his own son would be eventually blessed with a wife, or maybe he was blessed with a wife as he's writing this, but he would struggle with the temptation to be ravished with the love of someone else, and he'd wrestle with the desire to embrace a body that did not belong to him. I say that if we are to be careful, we must acknowledge that our natural man is going to find temptation in this area. And I know, I know some of you are sitting here saying, well, not me. Not me, I, I, I'd never be tempted in that area. Don't be so sure. Don't be so sure. Understand this, listen, your, your natural self, and when you got saved, God gave you his divine nature, but he did not remove your, your sinful nature, your natural nature from you. You still have that. Therefore, as a result of that, there is a temptation in this area from time to time. And we must acknowledge that. Knowing that this is a temptation to all men, we are wise, listen, you're wise to set up practical boundaries to protect against yielding to this temptation. I just took the time to write out four practical things that I think would be wise for every man in this room to set up as sort of boundaries or limits in their, in their life as they deal with the opposite gender. I would say, number one, never be alone for an extended period of time with someone of the opposite sex that you're not related to. Never be alone 
never be alone for an extended period of time. Now listen, I, I understand, you know, you walk into a building and, and she's standing there for just a moment. You say, hey, how are you? Good to see you. And you keep on moving. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. Man, sometimes people get so weird about this kind of stuff, you know. Walk into a, into a room or into a building and a woman's standing there and it's just like, ah! What are you doing here? Honey! You know, they call it. Don't do that. That's stupid. And honestly, that, that, makes, that makes, can I just be really honest with you? That makes the woman feel very, very strange and very bizarre. Like, like she's, like, like she's some object of your lust and, 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 and that's, all, that's all she's good for. That's, that's stupid. Don't act like that. Now, I, listen, I went overboard in trying to illustrate that and, I, and I've never seen somebody actually do that. But I know, I know people who sort of act like that. You know, it, it, it's like, you know, sitting in the car and somebody, you know, accidentally, you know, might get in the car, doesn't really jump out as fast. I mean, just stupid stuff. It's like, I'm sorry, this isn't your car. Your car maybe is over there, you know, instead of having to dive out of the car like she's got a bomb strapped to her or something. I'm, talk, I'm talking about for an extended period of time in a room together. Um, I, I'm talking about sitting down and talking to one another and, 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 and developing in, in, in those areas and, you know, because that's where it often starts. And I'm just simply saying, listen, you men would be wise to say I'm never, I'm never gonna be alone for an extended period of time with someone of the opposite sex that I'm not related to. I would say, number two, don't give gifts to someone of the opposite sex that you're not related to. Don't give them gifts. Now, I, I understand, listen, you, you might have a coworker and you've gone on a trip and the tradition is, or maybe it's Christmas time, and what I, would, what I would advise you to do, if that's the case, is that you gift that gift to her and you put your name and your wife's name. This is from both of us. I'm just, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you that, that when, you, when you exchange gifts with someone, this, this, it, it has the potential, it has the potential to open up a door. I, I just be careful about that. Is it possible to get a souvenir for a coworker and just hand it to him and it'd be fairly, yeah, I suppose so. But I think you get the idea. I think we need to be careful about that. I'd say number three, this is important. Don't confide in someone of the opposite sex that you're not related to. You, you understand what I'm saying when I say confide? I'm talking about sort of becoming vulnerable with them, opening yourself up to them and sharing things with them that you don't share with anyone else. I would not encourage you to sit down and say, I'm gonna tell you something, I'm not told anybody, and I, and I need you to, that, that's not smart. Because you're communicating a message there that, that, that I, I feel this connection with you that I don't feel with anyone else, therefore I can share this with you that I can't share with anyone else. And I'm just, I'm just simply saying, you're opening up a door that ought not to ever be opened. Many times, many times affairs begin, listen, they begin at, a, at an emotional level first in which we develop an, an emotional connection and before long, then it becomes a romantic connection, then it becomes a physical connection and then your life is destroyed and your family is destroyed. Number four, this is, oh, this is a big one. Don't text, direct message, send emails or make phone calls to someone of the opposite sex that you're not related to. Now again, obviously the exception to this would be for employment purposes. You're working on a project and you have female coworkers and, and so there's emails exchanged back and forth. Hey, did this get taken care of and did that get taken care of? But I'm, I'm talking about after hours. I'm talking about talking about things that are not related to work and you know, how was your weekend and how, you know, how was your, you know, what did you have for supper you know, and stuff like that. That just, that's, that, it really doesn't matter. 
That, that's not anything that you ought to be interested in. I'm talking, I'm talking to, to men with women, but can I just say that this is good for women with men as well. We're to be, we're to be content, but we're also to be careful because these temptations exist. Can I say that with a, that, 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 that's, that, that's what we need to talk about there as far as the temptation, but notice secondly, we see the reminder. Look in verse number 21. Look what he says. He says, and why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman? Verse 20. Look at verse 21. For the, for the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his goings. You know what Solomon does? Solomon says, listen, son, I understand. I understand that there's a temptation there. I get it. But let me remind you about something. The eyes of the Lord are always watching. God, God sees. God knows. God hears. Some of you, you may have violated some of these principles that we just talked about a moment ago. And by the way, those are four. You, you can think of others, I'm sure. And if you can, you know, share them with me. I'd, I'd be happy to hear them. And by all means, implement them into your life. But I'm, I'm, just, I'm just simply saying, listen, you, you, you may have violated some of, some of those things. And here's what we need to be reminded of. No one may know. No one may know. There's a God in heaven who sees everything. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, son, listen, listen, if, if, my, if my warning isn't enough, I've laid out what can happen in verses one to 14. I've told you to be content with the wife that God has given you, with the institution of marriage. And I've told you that you're going to be tempted in this area. And all of that isn't enough. Then be reminded of this. God is always watching. That's the one thing, listen, that's the one thing that kept Joseph from sinning in this area. He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You know, Joseph understood, Joseph understood, listen, dad's gone, brothers are gone, mom's gone, family's gone, no one is here to keep track of me, but God has not left my side, God is still here. And God sees and God knows. The Bible says in Proverbs 15, three, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Jeremiah 16, 17, the Bible says, for mine eyes are upon all their ways, they are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. You dabble in this area, you fool around in this area, and you think, I pulled it off, no one knows. And I just, want you to, I just want you to know something. God sees, God knows, and God will deal with it. Notice, finally, we see the destruction in verses 22 and 23. It says, his own iniquity shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. He shall die without instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. Don't, don't miss verse 22. His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself. He shall be holden or bound with the cords of his sins. You know, we are really good at making excuses, aren't we? The devil made me do it. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. We're good at shifting the blame. The bottom line, listen, the bottom line is that our own iniquity, the Lord says, our own iniquity will take us, will bind us, and will destroy us. We cannot, listen, in that day, we cannot pass the buck. We cannot shift the blame. We cannot do any such thing. God, listen, God will hold you, God will hold me accountable for our purity or for our impurity in this realm. Your own sins, your own iniquities will take you your own sins will, be, will, will take you and you'll be holding with the cords of those things. You'll be bound. You'll be, you'll be handcuffed with, the, with, with your own sin, not, not with the sin of someone else. No, listen, it's your own sin. You choose to go this way, then you've, you've absolutely violated the principles that are taught in God's word. 
and, and there's not a person in this room that doesn't know better. The vast majority of people that are listening online, I'm assuming even though you are mostly faceless to us because we're not exactly sure who's watching, but you know better as well if you've listened to this message. If you spend any time in God's word, you know better. Therefore, we cannot, in that day, we cannot say, well, it's not my fault, it's this person. No, no, God, God says the cords, listen, the cords, you'll, you'll be bound with the cords of your own sin. You'll be taken with your own iniquity. Can't, you cannot shift the blame in that day. So how can you remain morally pure in the midst of a depraved, decadent culture? Two things, be content. Be content with marriage and be content with the wife God gave you in your youth. And be careful. Remember, if you're gonna be careful, you're gonna have to remember that you are susceptible. Every one of us are susceptible in this area to temptation. Therefore, we must set up safeguards. We must pray and ask the Holy Spirit to lead us not into temptation. And we must remember that the Lord is always watching. The Lord is always watching, lest you and I be destroyed. Would you stand with me? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment.